You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 16th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The UK's surprising new foreign secretary makes an unsurprising first trip overseas. Spain's prime minister will attempt to govern his country with people who want to break it up. And how the EU in curd the wrath of French cheesemakers. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nina Dos Santos and Somnath Batabile will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Ree Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Nina Dos Santos, international broadcast correspondent and former CNN Europe editor, and by Somnath Batabayal, lecturer in media and development and international journalisms at SOAS. Hello to you both. Hello. hello. Uh, Nina, first of all, why do I get the sinking feeling that you have not dressed up like that for this programme? Oh, I'm wearing a sparkly secret <laughs> evening dress, aren't I? Um, well, uh, I'm going to a human rights awards uh, ceremony later on today that's, um, you know, going to be in an occasion to, uh, you know, acknowledge quite a few remarkable individuals in their fight for human rights that, of course, as we know, is getting curtailed day by day, it seems, even here in Western countries. Uh, indeed, so we will shortly be discussing some of the circumstances in which that may or may not be occurring. Um, Somnath, you have not, uh, regrettably, uh, matched Nina by wearing a, spark- a sparkly so. sequined <laughs> outfit. I mean, that's a nice jumper. I'm not, I, am, I am not knocking the jumper. <laughs> yeah. But as is traditional, would you like to remind us and our listeners how disgustingly successful your current novel writing and screenwriting career is going. I wish it were true, but very. But thank it's you. Not, it's not doing badly. It's not doing badly in the sense that you know a ten-year-old book has been picked up for a TV series, but I'm finding out how difficult it is. To, you know, writing a book is a lonely affair. It is getting a TV show on television. Oh, I've no idea how it ever happens. I genuinely, I, I, I know people involved in this business and I, I generally, genuinely rather do not understand how anybody has the patience to actually see it through. Yes, well, the book was optioned six times, the seventh time as it has been you know, getting <laughs> done. The editing process, this was supposed to be on TV eight months ago. But somebody or the other keeps saying, oh, can we have another cut? Oh, I, I, okay. I know. I feel like we have been allowing you to plug it. I know. This is, but, I, I'm starting yeah, to wonder if you've made but, the but, whole but, thing but, up. But, but, but let me plug something else. Oh, you go know, on. Uh, Jaipur Literature Festival, the, the largest such festival in the world. Um, February 1st, my second novel gets in, uh, launched. So that is Red River is coming to town. Okay. So is the second novel going to come out before the TV series of the first novel is actually you know, I'm available? hoping they both come out together. The, the, the publicity rubs off each other and I don't have to do much. <laughs> okay. Well, we will doubtless talk about that again nearer the time. But won't you talk about the cricket? Uh, oh, God. Well, the thing no, is, no. I was trying to avoid the cricket. I, know, I, I was know. trying to avoid the cricket for two reasons, Somnath. This uh, for the for our listeners in the non-cricketing world, is this Sunday's World Cup final between our respective homelands of Australia and India. We both are happy at the same time on yeah, cricket. Well, the, the two reasons I don't really want to talk about Somnath, one is that I rather suspect that India is going to win, and two, that it's one-day cricket, which I do not regard as actual cricket. 
What do you think for 2020 then? I mean, that's that's, not, that's, that's, that's not even one day cricket. Right. I, I don't even. I don't. I mean, I guess you could argue at that point. I can't lose either way. If yes. Australia win, I'm happy because Australia won. If they lose, I don't. Actually don't really care, care all that much. Okay. Uh, no. But we will move along, and we will start with the first overseas visit by the UK surprise new foreign secretary, former Prime Minister David Cameron, now Lord Cameron of a location yet to be declared as of this broadcast. He has visited Ukraine, meeting President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kyiv before pushing on to Odessa with Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. Cameron made all the predictable and indeed reasonable noises, re-unstinting support for Ukraine and so forth, and also made the obvious yet accurate observation that this was especially important at a moment when the world's attention was divided. Um, Nina, probably not surprising that this is what Cameron does week one in his new job, but was it nevertheless an important gesture? I think it is an important gesture at this time, obviously, when... um, you know, all of the eyes of the world are fixated on events in the Middle East between Israel and Gaza. And of course, there's concerns about how much military funding is going to be coming from mm-hmm. the United States after all the hullabaloo uh, surrounding the Speaker in the House of Representatives and the debt ceiling. So um, I think it is important. And also, let's just be honest, the UK is one of the biggest weapons manufacturers in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, about £4.6 billion worth of material has been committed since 2022 by the UK. UK, uh, to Ukraine, because of course, first the security of Europe, it's important, but also it's important to keep providing them with these kinds of weapons that are making such a difference on the battlefield. We're talking about tanks, drones, um, anti-tank weaponry, rocket launchers, and so on and so forth. The UK makes a very successful version of the sort of HIMARS rocket launch system mm-hmm. that America makes. So all of that will be the type of things that they will be. Uh, talking about in terms of British commitment on, with the hope that then the United States, when it gets its act together, uh, will be able to, you know, commit as well and continue to commit. Uh, Somnath, a a remark that Cameron made to President Zelensky, uh, Cameron said, I've had some disagreements with Boris Johnson, but his support for you was the finest thing he and his government did. Um, It might be argued, and I suspect Cameron would argue, that that is getting over a low bar, but nevertheless, is he he right, do you think? Is, Is that that if we think of Boris Johnson in terms of legacy, is that the is that the headline? I wonder how difficult it was for Cameron to acknowledge <laughs> that, despite their forty years of friendship. Uh, but yes, it, it was one of uh, Johnson's finest moments in, mm. in, in uh, as prime minister. Also, though, uh, Cameron, you know, has a long history in public service, but he also brings a lot of baggage. You mentioned um, British uh, Britain's. Um, arms manufacturing. In 2010, it was the same government, Cameron government which presided over huge budget cuts in defence, about £38 billion, which is still not you know, um, covered up. So while we say that, yes, we will provide, it comes from a spa- you know, the austerity baggage which will continue to uh, pursue him. And uh, But, as you said, both... In the very first week, going down to Ukraine when times are really difficult for the attention being divided was a critical moment and, you know, it was a strong statement made by um, Britain. Um, Well, this statement he also made, uh, Nina, that it was dangerous to Ukraine, the division of the world's attention, coupled with the fact that getting on for two years of Ukraine defending itself from Russia, uh, attention was waning anyway. Is that actually dangerous for Ukraine? How reliant is it still uh, on feeling like it can command headlines? 
You know, it's interesting. I was sitting in an event in the House of Commons last week listening to Bill Browder um, and Mikhail Khodorkovsky talk mm-hmm. about this particular issue. And um, Bill was saying, you know, the biggest risk that the world faces at the moment is that countries like the UK and the United States give Ukraine just enough weaponry to make sure that they don't lose the fight, but not enough to win it. This is a common complaint among Ukrainians. Exactly. And uh, and. It appears as though we're, we're in danger of reaching that type of territory. Exactly. Yeah. Accelerated, of course, by events in the Middle East, especially if that becomes a wider conflagration. So I think it is an important point. Um, and, you know, one thing I would say, though, that was comforting over the last week was that uh, um, if you look at how much the oil price cap has affected Russia, there's signs that it is starting to affect the Russian economy a little bit. Mm. Um, but whether or not it's enough to create that sort of pincer grip to make any movement here uh, on the ground in Ukraine materially and then also politically for big countries like the UK and the United States, that remains to be seen. Uh, just finally on this, Somnath, a thought that did occur to me, and it, and it does so tell us something about the difference between the two great transatlantic allies. There will be a presidential election in the United States next year. There will probably be a general election in this country next year. But in the US, aid to Ukraine will be a huge election issue. Whereas in the UK, it strikes me it will barely be an issue at all. Probably not. I think uh, morally, the UK public is far more pro-Ukraine than the U.S. would be at this. I mean, there's another point when I was just, again just which mm. comes to mind. You know, Cameron's closeness to China has been so much talked about. I wonder, you know, if his movements towards Ukraine can he put any pressure on China? Is there any kind of movement that might happen? Uh, I wonder. Just a thought that you know will his proximity, can it, can it be leveraged at all? That's a really important point. And also, there were former US uh, ambassadors in town last week talking about exactly this issue. Um, when, on the day it was announced that David Cameron would be coming back into government, there's a lot of hawk, hawks in the United States, China hawks, that are quite concerned that with the current makeup of this government at the moment between Rishi Sunak and then David Cameron having such an important position, that sort of commercial interest might in the end trump that security concern that hawks on both sides of the house, by the way, in the United States have vis-a-vis China. Well, to Spain now, which at last knows the identity of its new prime minister, and it's the one they already had. After months of wrangling following a somewhat inconclusive general election in July, incumbent PM and leader of the Socialist Party, Pedro Sanchez, has corralled a small working majority in the Congress of Deputies. He has done it, however, by relying heavily on two smallish parties dedicated to the cause of Catalan independence, which is to say his government of Spain will henceforth be reliant on the goodwill of people whose whole thing is wanting to break Spain up. Uh, Somnath, is this necessarily as weird as it sounds? You know, uh, much as the socialists across Europe would be celebrating this, there is, I mean, there, there's this dilemma right at the heart of this decision too. Sanchez had been very clear during the election that he was not going to offer this deal. Mm-hmm. There would be no clemency. The absolute, what the black and white nature of this, that I want to be prime minister and the leader of the country and to do this deal, there's a moral vacuum at the center of this, which the People's Party is going to really exploit. Look, even the... The the People's Party, who, lest we forget, did actually kind of win the election. Win the election. And (laughs) that's that's why it's so evident, it's so stark. And 
much as he's saying that talking about a united spain already jans have already said look don't overreach yourself you know we are separatists unless uh, you know and we'll keep a very strong hold on you so this is going to be a difficult time for spain i mean united spain is not what we will see in the next four years um nina there's <clears throat> there's a couple of arguments in favor of what sanchez has done which sanchez is obviously leaning on fairly heavily one is that if he hadn't done this it would put the country through yet another election uh and who knows if another election would return an even more conclusive or less conclusive result than the previous one. His other argument, and this may be a bit of a reach, is that by incorporating the separatists into the government of Spain, he kind of neutralises the issue and prompts a sort of general grand national reconciliation. Is that as self-serving as it does sound now that I've said all that out loud? I think the second argument is the weaker one, as you rightfully point out, isn't it? Um, very clearly, because the problem is, is that what it does is it opens up the door for this to come up yet again in the mm. future and poses some constitutional problems. So there's about 300 uh, people who are linked to the Catalan separatist movement who've been accused of all sorts of crimes between 2012 um, run all the way up to the 2017 referendum. Um, and essentially as part of this deal that Sanchez is putting forward is that they would immediately grant them amnesty. But what precedent does that set? There's a lot of Spanish conservatives who will be deeply disaffected by that, not just those those in the Partido Popular. It's also just your average Spaniard who isn't potentially a Catalan, who isn't you know, in favour of these various separatist movements, because it's not just Catalonia that this is important Indeed for. Not. Remember, it's Euskaria, the Basque country, Galicia. So I think there's a real concern here that it sets a, a precedent. And, you know, who knows whether or not this government will actually hold. Yeah. Well, indeed. But do you think there is a concern there, Somnath, that having been amnestied uh, and having been, I guess, therefore they might interpret forgiven, the separatists might think, well, there's, there's no disincentive to having another lash at this? I mean, more than the separatists having a lash, you know, uh, it is the, there is a real danger that the right-wing... Uh, Population might take to the streets. I mean, there's a well, bit of numbers bit, of them already have. Yes, and there's a bit of frothing, you know, from papers like the Telegraph, which is say talking about a January sixth like insurrection in, in Spain. So, uh, so I think that danger is more, uh, uh, you know, uh, far more um, proximate than uh, Catalan separatist movement. And indeed, there was a member of the Vox party who was shot in the head, wasn't there, about there a week was. ago? Yes. Um, but might Sanchez also have calculated, Nina, that the moment, if there ever was a moment for Catalan independence, has in fact passed? Uh, recent polls suggest that such support as there was, which was never overwhelming, um, is declining even further. I mean, not that the Catalan separatists have been necessarily notable for their logic and reason, but might they also have understood that the the game is basically up on that front? I think this is a really important point, Andrew, here you're making, and it has ramifications for, for instance, what happened in Scotland mm. with the 2014 referendum over there, the Scottish National Party, and then the sort of implosion of the Scottish National Party under Nicola Sturgeon's watch, not just because of allegations of um, how finances were managed... But also, as you said, because essentially, without a figurehead like, for instance, Carlos Puigdemont or Alex Salmond and uh, Nicola Sturgeon, sometimes these movements run their course and fizzle out, especially if when 
these officials are elected and they spend so much time campaigning that they can't actually deliver the policies on the ground, which is what we've seen in Scotland. So I think perhaps he is making that calculation, yes. And it has ramifications, as I was saying before, not just for those different parts of Spain with their own um, less powerful separatist uh, wishes, but also parts of Europe, like, for instance, Scotland. Indeed, um, Fijou was saying uh, of the... Partido Popular in Spain, the conservative side, was saying if if this happens, it'll have important consequences for other parts of the EU as well, where there are these separatist regions. In fact, they're already calling on the EU to uh, yeah. look at this, right? Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, but just a final thought on this, and this is possibly wishful thinking on my part. Is it possible as well that the in staging that referendum six years ago, uh, Somnath, the, the Catalans became acquainted with quite how ridiculous a great deal of international opinion thinks their cause is. I mean, I'm not saying there is no history uh, of unfair treatment of the Catalonian people, but can they not see at this point that the being what they are, an extremely prosperous part of a generally prosperous, well-ordered European country is probably not the sort of thing worth staging a revolution over. You're saying that they need better PR. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, yes. The cause is not on the foremost in everyone's mind at the moment, yes. Uh, Well, let's move along to the World Health Organization, which, possibly missing the attention, has named a new global health threat, loneliness. The WHO has indeed launched an international commission to investigate the problem, led by US Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who is of the belief that loneliness is as bad for the health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, leading to noticeably grim outcomes in terms of dementia, general mental health, strokes and heart disease. The WHO is of the belief that the recent COVID-19 pandemic accelerated the problem, encouraging people to lead cloistered lives at a time when technology further enabled exactly that. Um, Nina, are you necessarily buying this? I think this is really important, actually, and I think the time that they've um, launched this, just as winter's setting in, it's pretty bleak here in the UK today, um, pouring with rain outside and you know I think people do get older people do get lonely and it's not just an older person's issue no it's not I'll I'll, I'll give you an anecdote earlier on today I went to go and visit my mother who's elderly she's not terribly elderly but she's getting on lives on her own and I was saying have you been out today she said no 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 I've, I've got loads of friends I've been on the telephone all day that's what us old people do we stay in but we're on the phone. Um, And I think youngsters are also on their phones or in messaging or on apps and so on and so forth. And it takes away that, you know, natural social interaction that we now realise is so important for us. Um, There is a counterintuitive proposition to this, Somnath, and it it, it does strike me that so much of what we are well what people will spend extra money to accomplish is lack of proximity from other people we 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 do actually treasure getting away from our fellow humans it's why people spend more money on you know posh class seats on planes it's why people want to live in detached houses quite a lot of what we do uh, is is aimed at getting as far away from our fellow beings as possible yeah, you know, I'm, I'm torn between in this argument. I'm not very, you know, Nina has taken a position. Coming from Delhi, if you step out, he smoke 15 <laughs> packets of cigarettes a day anyway. And you fight there for loneliness. You, you can never be lonely in Delhi. Um, I mean, this is, and who, WHO has already said that this is not uh, 
just a global north problem. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. a, it's a, you know, they're trying to be sure that because they understand some of the ridiculous nature of saying uh, 15 cigarettes and loneliness is the same. Honestly, there are parts of this world. I mean, you mentioned winters. Diwali is a time where you can't get away from people in, in <laughs> India, right? So, uh, th- 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 these are, um, yeah, uh, sorry, I mean, my, my position on this is it's probably not as bad as smoking. Um, there is, of course, a certain amount of danger. I understand that, you know, young people on their phones being, being alone. I think also what you mentioned Andrew, there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. Oh, so, absolutely. So one can be lonely in a crowd and be on I, your own terms. Of course, of course. You know, uh, so I understand that, but I'm not sure how the research said 15 cigarettes and loneliness is the same. I don't think it is the same. I mean, I don't think it's exactly the same. They would, they would, they I understand, of course. They were drawing a comparison, but no, I think you're absolutely right in that. Certainly, I know from personal experience some of the. I can tell for a fact some of the loneliest people I know uh, actually live with huge families um, who, <laughs> who, for one reason or another, they would probably rather not. Um, but there is, there is a point here, I think, Nina, um, attached to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is that it might have accelerated this tendency. I think, I mean, I certainly know, and I suspect most listeners probably do know at least one person who went, frankly, a little bit Howard Hughes uh, during the pandemic and has perhaps never, never entirely re-emerged. Yeah, I think you're right. And and they can have Zoom calls and WhatsApp and FaceTime calls with you and you'd probably never notice that they mm. have become so detached. That's the, the risk as well, isn't it? But it does have huge implications for your health. I mean, looking at the data that the WHO put out, and by the way, the reason they've probably done this now is that they have a few years' worth of data because of the pandemic, uh, and they reckon that um, being lonely, especially for older people, increases um, the risk of developing dementia by 50% and 30% when it comes to the risk of coronary artery disease, as I was saying before, because people don't need to go out to see people anymore. They don't need to be as mobile. So I think there's there's some confounding factors mm. that link loneliness to other health issues that they haven't sort of... Yeah. divorced uh, and separated inside this um, inside this report. But I think it's all common sense, isn't it? Really, human beings are social animals. Well, you say it's common sense. The Commission on Social Connection proposes to run for three years. And, you know, nice work if you can get it. But, but Somnath, <laughs> is, is it... I mean, They'll you fed I, up with each other. <laughs> exactly. Um, they just they just want a bit of time off, a uh, bit of peace and bit yeah, of peace and quiet. But, still don't want to go back to work. You know, but, but, still want to work from home. But but really, <laughs> Sonath, what con- what conclusions, what remedies are they going to be able to propose beyond put on a clean shirt and go out and meet some people? Imagine the amount of money they're spending for three years and you're asking me this question on radio. What are they going to do? I, I don't know. Uh, they have to be very creative. Um, probably ban social media, uh, force people to get back to offices if they can. I'm not, and I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, I, I think I'm, it's a I'm great all, junket. I'm all aboard for the first one of those. <laughs> oh, think. yes, of course. Um, well, we will move along to the kind of light relief which only the French can provide. Uh, and Charles de Gaulle once mused on the difficulties of governing a people who had 246 
six types of cheese. And France cheesemongers, French cheesemongers, in fact, have mounted their high horses or perhaps their high onion-draped bicycles over a proposed EU recycling law which might menace the circular wooden boxes in which fancier camembert has traditionally been packaged. The European Commission has sought to alleviate concerns, saying that they merely seek an improvement in recyclability, but this may not be enough to dissuade some enraged farmer from dumping a hillock of reeking roquefort outside the office of some hapless eurocrat. Um, Nina, I I am sceptical somewhat about this story. I think this sounds a little bit like one of those good old-fashioned straightened bananas stories that people enjoy writing about the EU. The EU have tried to say, or the European Commission have tried to say, we are not, we are absolutely not trying to ban your fancy circular wooden boxes. You're picking on me because, you know, I went to French school. I, I spent am, a lot I, of time I, in France. I, I am picking on you because you went to a French school. And if anybody, you know... I, dairy products if, if from a, that if, country. If there's a better reason to pick yeah. on somebody, I, for one, cannot think of it. Look, um, I I don't know. I mean, I think you you might be right. There might be a bit of sort of um, reverse PR going on mm. here in this. And we all do remember the Bendy Banana um, business. That was Boris Johnson, by the way, wasn't Very it? possibly. Very possibly. Very possibly. And somebody should send him a French camembert without the packaging. <laughs> Ideally a square one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got to say, um, having spent so much time in France, um, I do. I would say, you know, there's that moment when those French camembert boxes really don't contain the smell of a camembert. I'd be quite happy, actually, if they changed the packaging. Because when you open the fridge, you're almost knocked out. And when you sit are, are on you a... Are <laughs> you advocating, Nina, for camembert to be sold in vacuum-sealed plastic? You'll you never be what? able to go to France again <laughs> no, if this know, gets I'll out. No, I'll be banned. <laughs> Shunned. You know, I'll never be able to touch a Mont d'Or again, <laughs> let alone camembert. Um, I mean, I do... I, you know, I have. I think they're they're quite nostalgic, aren't they? I I I like those uh, French camembert boxes. They seem quite environmentally friendly, actually, and sustainable, don't they? In the sense that they're made out of I mean, it's, birch it's, wood it's, or something it's, it's like wood, that. I guess. Um, so I don't see why they're so offensive. Frankly, it's the smell that offends me more <laughs> rather than the box. Um, but yeah, it might be a confected argument. Laurence Boone, the um, EU minister uh, in France, obviously has taken that position, hasn't she? And she's briefed yeah. journalists saying, look, this is this is really a non-story and they're picking on us. Um, I don't know. I think it's a storm in a camembert <coughs> my, box. My, my other pet theory, Somnath, uh, <laughs> hastily improvised, is that some frankly bored bureaucrat somewhere feels like, you know, his job means nothing and no one pays attention to them, has just floated this to wind up the French because he knew, sure he, 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 knew, he knew it would get a reaction. Well, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah. he's probably not British anymore working yeah, at the course, EC. But, of course, yeah, no. but, but, but somebody's just thought, ah, it's been a slow week. I know, I know. After a good bottle of Bordeaux. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, and I can't offer much on this one uh, simply because first I'm vegan and my wife is lactose intolerant and having grown up in India we had only Amul processed cheese <laughs> I, I can't even pronounce all these names so you know there's nothing much I can say uh, there is a wider point here, though, just finally on this, Nina, about the extent to which traditions should be deferred to in these respects, because that's often what is at the heart yeah. of these, these you know, straightened banana stories about the EU, that they are actually trying to modernise something. They are trying to make something yeah. more efficient, more environmentally friendly, but people get sentimentally attached to something because that's just the way we've always done it. 
and particularly the French, because well, let's indeed. let's let's face it, France sells its culture more effectively than probably than yep. any other mm-hmm. EU country. Um, that's obviously in the wine market, where many people, including I think yourself, uh, Andrew, have said that it's very well marketed French wine and commands a, a significant premium as a result. Whereas, for instance, you know, Hungarian Tokai might not be that well known, and they might not have been able to. Um, to invest quite so much and defend that cultural patrimony. And I think that's what's at the heart of this, whether it's Camembert, Champagne, Bordeaux. It's just it's something that's really uniquely French. It's not entirely French or a French neurosis on that. There's certain Italians who get terribly excited if somebody else tries to call their chunky cheese Parmesan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, But there's something which I was just, uh, in this article, I was wondering that uh, this conversation is only for industrial production of mm-hmm. cheese not for artisan is this is this am i correct in uh, i believe so so it's only so finally we can figure out whether we are buying really good cheese or that's just that's a good point yeah that that probably is what getting the industrial production uh, people really upset well, so 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 do we come out of this thinking that the quaint wooden circular box might actually be a sign that you're getting the good stuff well, I mean, I'm, I guess the industrial production also comes in circular, but they'll be now forced to go on in plastic. So we will actually f- spend more money buying the circular boxes. I think I think we've solved the problem. Um, it's Somnath, a stinky one. <laughs> Somnath Som- stinking bishop. <laughs> and Nina Dos Santos, thank you both for joining us. It is time now for our letter from New York City. Here is our correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan. Early in the morning on Thursday, November 2nd, federal agents conducted a raid on a home in the Crown Heights area of Brooklyn. They seized two laptop computers, three iPhones and a manila folder. The folder was labelled with the name of the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. The devices and folder belonged to Brianna Suggs, a 25-year-old campaign consultant who is Adams' chief election campaign fundraiser. The raid was part of an investigation by federal authorities into whether Adams accepted illegal donations for his successful 2021 mayoral campaign, including from the Turkish government. The full scope of the investigation is not known, but we do know that one of the most important episodes being looked at involves the Turkish consulate building in New York. The Turkish house is a 36-floor, glass-fronted skyscraper located near the United Nations in midtown Manhattan. It serves as the headquarters of multiple Turkish diplomatic missions in New York City, as well as a center of Turkish cultural activity. Back in 2021, the Turkish consulate general was gearing up to open the building. Their plan was for the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, to preside over the building's ribbon-cutting ceremony in September of that year, while he was in town for the United Nations General Assembly. But there was a problem. The New York Fire Department found multiple issues with the building's fire safety plans and refused to sign off on an occupancy license. This threatened to derail the plan to have Erdogan at the opening ceremony. At the time, Eric Adams was not yet mayor of NYC, He was still serving as Brooklyn Borough President, but he took the step of contacting then-Fire Commissioner Daniel A. Negro and relaying the Turkish government's desire to use the building, at least on a temporary basis, for the ribbon-cutting. This move was unusual. 
The Turkish house isn't even in Brooklyn, and the borough president's powers don't extend beyond the borough's borders. But Adams had recently won the Democratic nomination for mayor. This basically guaranteed that he would become the next mayor of NYC, because the Republican nominee wasn't going to offer up a serious challenge. Everyone dealing with Adams during this period, including Daniel A. Negro, would have been aware of this fact. In the end, the city issued a temporary certificate of occupancy for the Turkish house. President Erdogan was able to formally open the centre on September 20th, 2021. At the ceremony, Erdogan said the skyscraper reflected Turkey's increased power. Eric Adams claims that when he called the fire commissioner, he was simply advocating for the interests of his Turkish constituents in Brooklyn. He had long-standing ties to the Turkish community. He also had a long-running relationship with the Turkish consulate general, which had paid for part of a trip he took to Turkey in 2015. But the feds are looking into whether Adams' relationship with Turkish interests was more involved and less proper than he claims. What they're really interested in is whether the 2021 Adams campaign was implicated in a straw donor scheme. This is when illegal contributions of foreign money are made to a campaign through donations in the names of eligible individuals. To illustrate the kind of things that the feds are looking into, take a fundraiser that was held for Adams in May of 2021. It was organised by KSK Construction, a Brooklyn building company owned by Turkish immigrants. Adams' campaign reports show that at the event, 48 donors, including the company's owners, employees and their families, along with others in the construction and real estate industries, donated $43,600 to the Adams campaign. Those contributions enabled Adams to obtain another $48,000 in public matching funds for a total of nearly $92,000. Sources have told CNN that federal investigators have found evidence that KSK returned money to employees in the same amounts as the contributions. This might suggest a straw donor scheme, though there's no conclusive evidence of that yet. KSK isn't the only Turkish organisation that made significant donations to the 2021 Adams campaign. People affiliated with a Turkish-owned non-profit called Bay Atlantic University made $10,000 in donations to Adams' mayoral campaign that were subsequently returned. The Adams campaign claims that it had already raised more money than it could spend. Perhaps most eyebrow-raisingly, Adams accepted donations from three members of a foundation incorporated by Bilal Erdogan, the son of the Turkish president. Neither Adams nor Brianna Suggs, his head of fundraising, whose home was raided, have been accused of wrongdoing. Adams has said he's cooperating with federal authorities and has already proactively reported at least one instance of improper behaviour. But the investigation is ongoing and has already attracted more attention to Adams' questionable connections than any other scandal he's faced during his near two years in office. That was Henry Ree Sheridan in New York, and that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Somnath Batabile and Nina Dos Santos. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer. Our researchers were Harrison Warlock and Julie Lassica, and our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>